Welcome to the October 3rd episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. And for those of you on the Enjoying the Bible podcast Facebook page, uh, you noticed that uh, last week, early last week, I posted on the uh, that page that uh, I, I'd been getting behind, and so I, I was running a day behind on uh, this last weekend. And then I uh, knew that the hurricane was headed in this general direction. And so this past week, my, my week was just, among other things, consumed with that and, and all of the preparations and the cleanup. So I apologize that I did not do any podcast this last week, but thank you all for understanding. Well, today's reading is Isaiah 17 through 19 and Ephesians chapter 5, but we're only going to focus on the New Testament in this podcast. I hope you're ready. Let's get started. Ephesians chapter 5. This is um, an interesting chapter. I I think, honestly, a fascinating chapter, particularly the second half of it where it talks about the Spirit-filled life. So we're going to uh, just make our way through here verse by verse with 33 verses. I've got to average about a verse a minute, so let's get started. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So here, he, you know, in other places, in, in two other places, he said, imitate me or follow me as I follow Christ. Here he's saying, imitate God. So this tells us, I mean, we could camp out honestly on this verse for quite a while and, and the ramifications, the implications of this verse. But when it says be imitators of God, that means that there are certain attributes of God that we can imitate. We cannot imitate his infinite power. We cannot imitate his uh, infinite knowledge, his omniscience. We cannot imitate his presence, his omnipresence, where he's completely everywhere at all times. But he is a God that loves, and so we can imitate that. He is a God that forgives, and so we can imitate that. Now, he is on an infinitely higher scale. It's not He's not even on the scale. He's infinite in, in those attributes. But we can certainly look at how God acts, responds, and uh, we can say, hey, in order... I want to be a Jesus follower. I am trusting in Jesus to save me. I want to follow him. And so we can look at the attributes that are given, ascribed to Jesus, that are ascribed to God the Father, and say those, by virtue of the fact that God is doing them, they are therefore right. And so we can follow them. But he says in verse 1, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. He said, God loves you so much. You're a dearly loved child, so follow after him and behave like him. Uh, like father, like son, right? Verse 2, and walk in love. So because God loves us, we are therefore to walk in love. We are to love him and to love others, the two greatest commands, right? Walk in love as Christ also loved us. Now that's talked about in a past tense, but what Paul's doing is he's referring to the crucifixion, to Christ loving us in the past, leaving heaven, taking on the body of a, a, a baby in utero and then being born, living the life, a perfect righteous life, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then for 40 days teaching and demonstrating his, his power, his glory, and then ascending to heaven. That was an act of love, infinite, sacrificial love. And so he said, as Christ also loved us, he's pointing back to that event, 
Obviously, Christ continues to love us, but Paul is just referring to that event. Walk in love as Christ also loved us, just as Christ gave up much that was rightfully his for the benefit of someone else. Love other people that way. Give up some of the things that are rightfully yours so that you can demonstrate a sacrificial act of love for someone else. He's saying, look to the Lord, look to Jesus, and follow him. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. I'm telling you, these verses are so rich and pregnant with meaning, and we could camp out on each of them. But uh, but to get through this, let's, you know, a minute of verse, right? So let's keep on going. Verse 3. But sexual immorality, I believe this is the Greek word porneia, that's the, just the general word for sexual immorality. Um, it, it doesn't specifically aim at any one sexual sin, it's just referring to all of it. Sexual immorality and any impurity, so any dirtiness, or greed, so we might say, well, I'm not engaged in sexual immorality and I'm not engaged in dirty stuff, but greed, oh, wanting a little bit more than what I've got? Um, or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. I mean, if, if we just camped out in verse 3 and just looked at the three of those and think, okay, I'm really not doing the first two, but the third one, mm, you know, I know I'm not really a greedy person, but there are times whenever I want things more than what I've got. Well, what verse 3 reminds us, among other things, is it's not just the big, heinous sins that God disapproves of that we should abstain from. It's also the things that we think are not that big of a deal. Those are things we should abstain from as well. This pursuit of holiness is not just getting rid of the big sins. It's letting the Holy Spirit take over every area of our life and being offended by even the smallest of sins in our mind and in our hearts. So, uh, and he said, this is proper for saints. The word saints is hagios. It means holy ones. So holy ones shouldn't act like this. And if you're saved, you're a holy one. You're a saint. So don't act like that. Verse four, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. And what, we're gonna, what we see in verse four is what Paul's going to be doing in a few verses to come. He's going to tell us, these are the things you don't do, but replace it with this thing. So he's going to tell us to stay away from the bad and to replace it with something good. Well, this is a principle that we realize. You can't just get rid of a bad habit or you cannot get rid of a sin without replacing it. If you don't replace it, then you're going to go back to it. The odds are you're going to go back to it. So here he says, he's talking about what comes out of your mouth. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable. Don't use your mouth for the bad stuff, but rather giving thanks. And so he said, instead of all of that, you as a Jesus follower, use your mouth to give gratitude to God and to express gratitude to people, right? Instead of the bad, replace it with good. What's the good? Being grateful. And I'm telling you, our culture, even the Christian culture, needs to learn much about this whole thing of giving thanks. In fact, the power of thank you, the power of gratitude. Verse 5, for know and recognize this, every sexual immoral or impure or greedy person, oh, so he's going back to the list that he referred to in verse 3, or greedy person, who is an idolater, oh, so now we see the offensiveness of what we thought was not that big of a problem. A little bit of greed, we, we wouldn't think that's an issue, but we read in verse 5 that a greedy person is an idolater. 
that the sin of greed is that we elevate something to the point that that's what we want. That's what we want. That's the thing that we think is going to make us happy, when really it's the Lord that should be the primary focus of our heart. And so I just want you to realize it's not just the big sins, it's the small sins. And if we reflect on why those small sins are so offensive, we would realize that there's a reason why God hates not just big, but small sins as well, even a little bit of greed. He said, uh, every sexual, verse 5, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's saying that if these things characterize you, you are not saved. Okay, so he's not saying that if you engage in those sins, then you are not saved. He is saying that if these things are ongoing, ongoing, um, that if these sins are who you are, you are not saved. Um, every person who is saved is going to battle with sin. Is it possible for someone who is saved to stumble into sexual immorality and then be feel guilt and conviction about it, and God's Holy Spirit is probing their heart to get them to repent, and then they repent and come back. Is that possible? Oh, absolutely. It happens a lot. But if someone is engaged in sexual immorality or impurity or greed or, you know, a hundred thousand other sins, if that's who they are, if there's no guilt, if there's no knocking on their heart's door with the Holy Spirit saying, you ought not be doing that, you need to repent. If there's none of that, then that's someone who's not saved. So it's not works. It's not It's not activity. It's not what we can do uh, that gets us saved. But what we're saved by faith. It's it's grace. There's there's no works at all added to it. But how do we know that we're saved? It changes us. It changes how we think. It changes how we act. It changes how we talk. And that's just what Paul is dealing with. That's the frame of reference Paul has as he gives verse 5, that if this is who you are, if this is how you act consistently, you're not saved. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these empty things or because of these things. And Paul is saying God's wrath. Now, God's wrath is an emotion like God has love and God is patient and God is saturated with peace and God has all sorts of other things, but they run concurrently. But there is a time when God has determined that his wrath will be experienced by all of those who are not resting in him, are not trusting in his son Jesus to save them. And so that's God's wrath that is coming on the disobedient. It, I think Paul's pointing to the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, actually, to the great white throne. That's the judgment day when the lost will stand before him, and that's when God's wrath will be experienced by all. Now, there are some who have stepped through death's door, not trusting in Christ. Honestly, there are billions that, from all time that have not given their heart to the Lord, are not trusting in him since the New Testament times, are not looking to Jesus as the object of their faith. And they are experiencing God's wrath even now in a place of torment. But Paul is saying, I just want you to know, don't be deceived by those who would tell you otherwise, but God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Friends, I'm telling you, this is going on right now. 
there is a, a, a biblical heresy. It's a heresy called universalism, and it's the belief that nobody will end up eternally in hell, that eventually hell will be emptied out because love wins. God's love will continue to reach people even in hell. A guy named Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins many years ago. I wrote a, a, a book review on that on my website, just slamming it because it was heresy. This is what verse 6 is warning about. Let nobody deceive you. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. There is a hell. People need to trust in Christ. They need to then, as they are trusting in Christ and resting in his salvation, then bear out the fruit of that salvation. Verse 7, he says, do not become their partners. Don't you hang out with those people like that. Don't you hang out with people like that. Verse 8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, one of the things about light and darkness, and John spoke of this, uh, Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus uh, spoke about this as well in the Gospel of John. Darkness is speaking about the world and about the things that are sinful that are that, that usually they happen at dark because they, they try to hide. Um, and so light is talks about the ways of the Lord and that which is beautiful and which is not hidden because it's pleasant. And so he said, you were once darkness. You used to live in ways that were not pleasing to the Lord, but now you are light in the Lord. Now you're saved. Walk as children of light. Do those things that are pleasing to God. Verse 9, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. You know, he said, you've got nothing to hide if you behave this way. Um, it's the fruit of light. The result of light is goodness, righteousness, and truth. You can't lose. Follow the Lord. Do what he's told you to do. Live in such a way that you are getting rid of sin in the power of the Holy Spirit and pursuing godliness and obedience. Verse 10, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. The word testing is a word that is used to speak of uh, discovering those things that are true and pure. And so he said, testing those things that are pleasing to the Lord. He said, live in such a way that your actions and your discovering your actions are pleasing to the Lord because you know he blesses you as a result of your obedient life. Verse 11, don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, so it's not just enough for us to abstain from sin. We have to speak out. Now, that doesn't mean that we're uh, the world policemen. That I mean, the Pharisees were great at speaking out. When we read this, but instead expose them, speak out against them, how do you do that? Well, what we do is we look to Jesus, and then we look to the examples of the saints in the New Testament, and we look to you know the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, looking at how they spoke out against untruth. And so that informs us. I'm telling you, there's a way that we could expose the darkness and be nothing better than a legalistic Pharisee. So we are not to just abstain from sin. We are to speak out against what is wrong but as far as how to do that, you've got to look to the New Testament. You've got to look ultimately to Jesus to see, okay, how did he speak out against what was wrong? Who did he speak out against that was wrong? 
honestly, if you look at Jesus' example, most of the time he was addressing the religious Pharisees. He was looking at the frauds and pointing out to them their weaknesses and their sins. In fact, if you look, I think it's Matthew 23, Jesus goes off on them as he exposed them publicly. But when you look at how he dealt with the sins that were in the world, um, a lot of times, you know, it just all depended on whether or not that person was in a position of influence. If they were in a position of influence, then they may have gotten talked to publicly. Um, if they were someone who was in grievous sin, but they seemed as if they were willing to, to listen to the Lord and spend time with Him and He could influence them, then he, it didn't seem that He really addressed the sin. Not that it was not sinful, but the Holy Spirit was working on them, and so there was no need for Him to do that. So it takes wisdom to know how to expose it. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Okay, that's self-explanatory. Verse 13, everything exposed by the light is made visible. Verse 14, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, so one of the things that we don't know about verses 13 and 14 is where the quote came from at the end of verse 14. It could be a, a consolidation of a few verses that Paul is maybe just kind of taking two, three, four verses in the Old Testament, wrapping them up together, and that's what he comes up with. It also could be that maybe this was an early Christian hymn, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That may have been a hymn that they sung. But what we do know is this is basically in verses 13 and 14, Paul is saying, live in the light. Don't do the things that are in the darkness. Don't engage in sin. Pursue holiness and uh, Christ will shine on you. That means God's going to bless those that are obedient. God will determine how he blesses, when uh, and to what extent, but... When we live in darkness, God must discipline. When we live in light, when we pursue obedience, then he comes after us and he desires to bless us. So Paul's saying, choose light, live in holiness. Verse 15, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Um, he's just once again saying, live in holiness. Be careful how you spend your time, not as unwise, but as wise, realizing that these are bad times that we live in. There's going to be the lure to pull you away from the Lord, but you resist it. You walk as a wise person and you chase after Jesus. You live in obedience. Verse 17, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. What's the Lord's will? Our sanctification, I think he wrote that in 1 Thessalonians, is it? And this is God's will, even your sanctification. God wants us to become more like his son. That's God's will. Don't be foolish. Don't live in sin. Verse 18. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, this is a powerful verse. And on Sunday nights, beginning um, last Well, to you, as you listen to this podcast, it will be last night. Uh, Sunday night, some, uh, October the 2nd at First Baptist, I'm beginning a series on the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is powerful, Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living. Don't be controlled by an outer substance which can mess you up, drunkenness. Don't be controlled by that. 
but instead be controlled by what is inside of you, who is inside of you. If you're saved, it's the Holy Spirit. So be controlled by him, okay? Don't be controlled by an outside substance that would lead to debauchery, that would lead to reckless living. He's saying, don't you be controlled by alcohol so that it messes you up. Instead, be controlled by the Holy Spirit who is inside of you who will not mess you up. Now, one of the things that we see is in the next three verses, we see the three characteristics, and there are others, but these are the three that Paul mentioned, three characteristics of someone who is filled with the Spirit. You might say, well, how would I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, there's three things. One, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. So one of the ways we can know that we're filled with the Spirit is we've got the joy, 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 joy down in our heart. We've got happiness within our heart. We're singing and making melody. That's one of the ways we can know we're filled with the Spirit is there is a deep-seated happiness, joy within us. What's the second way that we can know that we're filled with the Spirit? Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the second thing is if I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm going to live with gratitude. I'm going to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who is ungrateful, not grateful, is someone who is not filled with the Spirit. What's the third thing? If we are filled with the Spirit, verse 19, we're going to have a melody, a song in our heart. We're going to be characterized by being grateful people, verse 20. Then verse 21, it says... We're going to be submissive to others. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So he says that if we are filled with the Spirit, we are going to submit to others. Now, what does that mean? That word, I think it's hupatasso. I think it's in the Greek. That's the word. It means to rank under. It has nothing to do with value. It has everything to do with roles. It does not mean, oh, you're to see yourself as much less valuable than everybody else. You're to submit to everybody else. No, that's not what it says. What it says is submit, and that's like a military word. It means to rank under. That means you're not thinking about yourself all of the time. You're thinking about what you can do to bless and serve others. And if, if we're doing verse 21, if you've got a whole community, a church filled with spirit-filled people, and they're all submitting themselves to each other, well, then you've got a little bit of heaven because everybody's thinking about everybody else and everybody's looking for ways that they can serve and bless each other. That that's, would be incredible. Well, then what we do in verse 22 through the end of the chapter, and actually it continues on into chapter 6, is it talks about, okay, how would a spirit-filled family look? What would a spirit-filled wife look like? What would a spirit-filled husband look like? When we get to the next chapter tomorrow, what does a spirit-filled parent look like? What does a spirit-filled child look like? So let's look at uh, the rest of the chapter and look at what is a spirit-filled wife, what does a spirit-filled husband look like? Verse 22, it says, Wives... Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I tell you, I have heard um, more than a few guys refer to this verse. They, they don't so much know the verse where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But they know the verse where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. 
for those of you that are women that are listening, uh, which as I look at the statistics, most of you are, about two-thirds to three-quarters of you are women. Uh, so listen to verse 22. Listen to this. The word submit does not appear in verse 22 in the original language. It does not. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The word submit does not appear in the original language. Now let me tell you. Why does the word submit show up in our English translation? I know that some of you are in other countries, um, and so I'm not sure what your translations would say, but uh, it, it, why is the word submit here? Because one of the rules of grammar in Greek is that there is no need to, to put in a verb if you are using the verb that was used previously in the previous uh, sentence. Right, so the, the that grammar rule would say that since the verb was used in verse twenty one, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, then there's no need to put that verb in verse twenty two, because the absence of a verb just says, okay, go back to the previous sentence and pick up that verb. So whenever it says in verse twenty two, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, I just want you to know that submit one is not in there. But it is appropriate to fill that with submit because it goes back to verse 21. But that word in verse 21 says everybody is to submit, not just the wives, the husbands. But the only thing is, is it looks different for men and for women. As a wife submits to her husband, it looks different than a husband who submits to his wife. So let's talk about this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That means rank under. Now, I want you to know, once again, verse 21 says, all of you submit to each other. That's what a spiritual life looks like. So the husband is not saying, wife, you're to submit. The husband is also saying, well, I am to submit. That's one of the telltale signs that I'm filled with the Spirit is if I'm submitting to my wife. It just looks different in the role. So let's talk about those roles. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, so just as if you were submitting to Jesus. Verse 23, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. So the husband is the head of the, the wife. That doesn't mean that this is not talking about value. It's talking about rank. It's like saying, okay, military, the general is over the privates. Or the general is over the lieutenants or the captains or, or whatever. All it is is saying there is a rank here. There is a rank. Now, in Christian leadership, it, you know, as, we, as it says that uh, the husband is ranked over the wife, what that means is, is in Christian leadership, Christian leadership is servant leadership. Those who are higher up have a greater expectation to give up more of their rights. The higher you go, the more rights you should be willing to give up, and the more you should live less for yourself and more for the people under you. That's Christian leadership. That's servant leadership. And so I want you to know that this, when, when it ranks husbands and wives, it is saying that, yes, the husband is the one who is ranked over the wife in roles only in the marriage. This is not the community. This is in marriage. But as the husband ranks over her, that therefore there is an expectation that he, more than she, should be willing, uh, at, at least at times in their marriage, to give up certain of his rights to bless the one who is ranked under him, his wife, 
and he should be someone who is willing even to sacrifice. And in fact, we see that language when we're looking at the husbands. And so husband is the head of the wife. He's ranked over her as Christ is ranked over the church. He is the savior of the body. He's the savior of the body. Oh, we get a hint. Okay, Christ is the one who is head over the church, but he's the savior. What's that mean? Oh, yes, he's the leader because he's the one who died for us. And so the leadership of the male is something that's clearly taught in the Bible regarding marriage, but it's a sacrificial leadership for the benefit of the one who is under. And so what's the wife's role? She follows the loving leadership of her husband. Now, it's a wise man indeed who works with his wife to discover, okay, what are your needs? What are your desires? How is it that I can serve and lead in such a way that you flourish? And, and so it's a meeting of minds, and, and he realizes she's not an inferior, but he realizes that she is someone like Eve was made for Adam to complete him, Right? But the male's leadership, the male, the, the husband's le- leadership and his headship is not a position of prestige. It is one where he is called that if, if there is a uh, decision to be made and there is a disagreement between husband and wife, then the husband is the one who makes the final decision. The buck stops with him, but God's going to hold him more responsible because he is the leader in that home. But his leadership means that he serves those, and he serves his wife, he serves his kids. We're going to look at that in just a second. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything, okay? So as the church follows the loving leadership of our Christ, of Jesus, who loves us, who died for us, who has our best interests in mind, then then the wife is to follow the loving leadership of her husband, Okay? has nothing to do with value. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. There is no male and female in value. This is talking about roles. I'm going to show you something as we get to the end of this chapter here in just a few moments. Now, after only a few verses talking to the wife, now Paul really spends a lot of time with the husbands. Uh, Verses 25 all the way through verse 31. Husbands... Love your wives. So our submission, the husband's submission to his wife, shows up in love. The wife's submission shows up in following his his leadership. The husband's love shows up. The husband's submission to the wife shows up in sacrificial love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are to see their job as, as, as leader of the home as not to be something for their own benefit, but a position where they are to lead in such a way that it is for their wife's betterment and for her flourishing. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Guys should be willing to give their lives. And it's not just, oh, I would die for my wife. It's a daily giving of our lives for our wives where we don't see them as servants, but we see them as someone to be loved and cherished and and to serve as we are able to as husbands. But ultimately, 
We see our job as the, the final leader in the home. We're the protector in the home. We're the one who, if someone is going to be hurt, it's not going to be our wife. It's going to be us. You're going to have to get through us to get to our wife. That's what a husband's leadership looks like. When he makes decisions regarding moves and changes of jobs and vehicle purchases and things like that and budgets, it's for the benefit of his wife what is in her best interest to help her to flourish. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy. Okay, so a husband does his wife no good whenever he's making decisions uh, just to uh, spoil, you know? <laughs> that, that's not what it is. It's to help her grow in godliness, it's to help her to become more like Jesus. That's a husband's greatest desire is for his wife to grow in godliness, to become more like Jesus. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Okay, so this honestly is more of Christ's job for us. It's really not our job to wash our wife by the word, but how this can be interpreted to the husband is he's to be the one who is the spiritual leader in the home, to make Christ priority in the home so that his wife is able to be cleansed from sin just as he is being cleansed from sin. And he's to make sure that Christ is ruler of the home so that his wife is able to become more like Jesus. She's washed uh, by water, by the word. Verse 27, he did this, Jesus did this, to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So now we're really talking about Jesus and the church. Jesus is, is about the business of cleansing us, of making us more uh, godly, more holy, getting rid of sin that messes us up and moving into the light. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor. He wants us to be holy and godly, that's what Jesus does. The husband is to lead the wife in such a way that she's able to pursue a relationship with Jesus and enjoy that relationship and thrive in that relationship. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so Paul is speaking to the tendency of women that there are those that would not want to follow the leadership of their husbands. He's saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Follow their loving leadership. Now he's speaking to the sinful tendencies of the husbands. Sometimes within husbands, there's a desire to domineer, to say, I'm the one that's in charge. That's not what we're talking about here. He said in the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Don't mistreat your wife. If you love your, your wife, you love yourself. Happy wife, happy life. I think that's the way, you know, what, what Paul was talking about in verse 28. Verse 29, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church since we are members of his body. He said, you wouldn't hurt your body. You take care of your body. If you're hungry, you feed it. You know, if you're cold, you put something on. If, uh, you know, if you need safety, you go to a place of safety. That's what you do. You don't misuse your body. You take care of your body. He said, see your wife as that. Your wife is your body. The two have become one. So husband, take care of her. Provide for her just as you would provide for yourself. Verse 31, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here, Paul is referring back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, uh, where God said that, uh, or Moses said that, God, God said that through Moses, uh, this reason a man will leave his father and mother, right? So when he leaves them and he bonds with his wife, he is to become one flesh. That doesn't mean the wife loses her identity. It doesn't mean that the husband loses his identity. It means that they forge a new identity, right? They become one flesh. That means that the husband and wife are to strive to become one in every way, that, uh, that they think alike, they share a, a mutual love for the Lord alike, that they have you know, a lot of the same desires. The, the longer they're together, they are to strive to become one, where the two really are becoming one. When one feels something, the other feels it. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Now, I would tell you that verse 32 kind of comes like a, huh? <laughs> you know, because we think, wait a second, I, Paul, I thought you were talking about husbands and wives, you know, roles of husbands and wives. But what he was doing is saying, no, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church. So let me tell you this. In Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking as he's being led by the Holy Spirit, when he's talking about the, the husband and the wife relate to each other as Christ relates to the church and the relate church relates to Christ, he is not saying, hey, look at Jesus and the way he relates to the church and the way the church relates, and then follow them. Now, that's good. That's really good. But that's not the main thrust of this text. That's really not what the Apostle Paul is really getting at. What he's getting at is saying, husbands and wives live in such a way that you reflect the relationship of Jesus and the church. Let others look at your marriage and see the gospel. Let others look at your marriage, husband and wife, and how you relate to each other, and let them understand that's what uh, the, the church is to do as it follows the, the loving leadership of Christ, as the wife follows her husband. That's how Jesus, much Jesus loves us as he sacrifices for us to bless us. And he loves us so that his, his desire is to express that love in sacrificial ways. And that's what that husband's love for his wife reflects and, and demonstrates. And so really, Paul is really talking about Jesus and the church. That's what this really is about. But he's saying, husbands and wives, in your relationship with each other, demonstrate the way that Jesus and the church relate to each other. Verse 33, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself. Okay, so that refers back to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands are, each one of you is to love his wife as himself. And the wife is to respect her husband. Oh, wait a second. If we look back at the, the verse, it says in verse 22, wives submit. But here in verse 33, it says wives respect. Okay. So if you were to poll a hundred men, I don't care if they're saved or lost, if you were to poll a hundred men and say, what is it that you want 
emotionally from your wife? What is the biggest thing? Poll 100 guys. What's the highest emotional thing that you want from your wife? Most of them would say, I want to be respected. You know, I want her to look up to me. I want her to think I'm her hero. I want her to see me as somebody that that is her knight in shining armor, right? I want to be respected. But if you were to poll 100 women, saved or lost alike, it's, it's just the way we're wired. Men and women are wired. If you were to poll 100 women and say, okay, what is the deepest emotional need that you want from your husband? Now, respect would be on the list, but, uh, but the highest need would be women saying, I want to be loved. I want to be cherished. <laughs> I, want to, to, I want to know that I'm the one that's special to him. And so when you look at how God has wired us, just hardwired us, even apart from Scripture, if you were to poll lost people, they would say this, men want to be respected, women want to be loved. That is what this looks like. When women fill their role and follow the leadership of their husband, and when men fill their role of submitting to their wife by loving her and, and leading in such a way that it is for her benefit, and when, when a husband loves his wife that way and a wife respects her husband that way, I'm telling you, you got heaven on earth. You got heaven on earth. There are some that would look at Ephesians 5 and say, well, you know, I know this is how a spirit-filled marriage looks like. A wife submits and a husband loves. But, uh, but that's just not, that's just first century. That's not 21st century American. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. If we want to get to a place where men are sent, enjoy respect from their wife and wives enjoy respect from their, their uh, husbands, and enjoy love from their husbands, then Ephesians 5 makes perfect sense, perfect sense. Once again, we realize that God's Word really is the right way. It really is a wonderful way. It's the way to human flourishing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for the word that you have given to us. We thank you that as we read through Ephesians 5, we're reminded that it's not just big sins, it's small sins that are grievous to you. But we also realize that, that, uh, that we need to replace the, the sins that we're getting rid of in the power of your spirit. We need to replace those with good things, with good habits. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us on this journey that your Holy Spirit is leading us on to make us more like you, Jesus. But, Lord, as we also read about the command to be filled with the Spirit, that, uh, that as we read that command and, and see how it is that we are to submit to the Spirit's leading in our life and give Him control and depend upon Him and not ourselves, that it'll show up in tangible ways uh, with joy in our hearts and attitudes of gratitude and, and submitting, willingly submitting to others. And, and as we see how that plays out in husbands' and wives' roles as they relate to each other, Lord, help us to not take our cues from a lost and dying world, but to take our cues from you and to live in a way that you would have us to live knowing that even though it may not seem natural to the flesh, almost certainly will not be natural at all to the flesh, because the flesh fights against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But even though it is not natural, 
that it's the right thing and it's the way to true human flourishing. Help us, Holy Spirit, to live in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time.